Part 4 of John Bell's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Queen's Birthday Chez des Vignerons Francais. But before we enter this homestead, allow me to tell you of its occupants. All about them will thus gain in interest and it will only be anticipating the narrative of old reminiscences communicated to me during the pleasant and friendly evening I am about to describe. Thirty-four years ago, in 1852, two young people, a girl of twenty and the brother, aged fifteen, members of a family of Lorraine farmers, had their imagination fired by tales of the discovery of gold in Australia, and formed the adventurous project of going there together. Knowing that their parents would not agree to it, they applied secretly to their father's landlord and induced him to make the necessary arrangements for their passage out on board an English ship. They left their farm at night and passing through a small town where one of their uncles lived, they went to say goodbye to him, begging him to explain everything to their relations and to reassure them as to their future. After three months at sea, they reached Melbourne then possessed by the gold fever, and betook themselves to the Beechworth mines. The brother and sister never left one another. There were a good many Frenchmen amongst the Beechworth mines. The sister married one of them, and the brothers-in-law, being both familiar with wine-growing, established themselves about twenty-two years ago on the land they now occupy at Great Western. From the first they found a ready market for their grapes, their fruit and their wines, among the miners of Stahl, a few miles only further. They increased their estates by successive selections, and their property comprises now two thousand acres. On our arrival we found all the people of the neighbourhood there. A sort of hall, fifty feet long and thirty feet broad, the roof of which was supported by five large square trunks of trees, occupied the centre of the house. Like an ancient vestibule, it gave access to the numerous rooms of the establishment, and the entrance side was left wide open. Groups of men, young girls armed with croquet mallets, young men busy fixing the iron hoops through which the balls were to pass, had taken refuge there from the rain. My guide took me to the owners. Mrs. Truett, who, thirty-three years before, led out her young brother to show him the road to independence, was tall and strong, though a little bowed by toil. Her dress was that of the good old time in France, the slow-cadenced accent of her Lorraine dialect, of which she had lost nothing, was in harmony with the kindliness and the dignified simplicity of her looks. She called to us her son and her daughter, two young people speaking both French and English. Her brother, a large and handsome man, forty-eight years old, had one of those faces which inspires confidence from the first. He had married the daughter of an Alsatian, his friend at Beechworth, and their numerous little children completed the patriarchal family. As evening was coming on and I wished to see the vineyard, Mr. Truett took me to it, the same rich soil, the same vigour of vines. The greater portion of the plantation was on the hill, only a few acres in the flats below. They gathered on the hill about 300 gallons per acre, on the flats as much, sometimes, as 700 gallons to the acre. 
Notwithstanding this great difference in the production, there were twenty acres prepared to be planted on the highest part of the hill. I expressed my surprise to Mr. Truett. Oh, he said, our clients buy the wine grown on the hill, and they do not like that grown in the flat. And this is why. In the light wines of the temperate regions, the small proportion of alcohol is amply compensated by the aromas, by the tannin, by those full-mouth flavours which render wine the best beverage on earth. But these are the result of the delicate ethers produced by the acids present in the juice. Strong red soils, a burning sun, do not allow them to subsist. Sugar and afterwards alcohol absorb all. If the same kinds of grapes are planted on the hill and in the plain, the wines produced on both situations are similar in character. Only that of the plain, containing no special quality, merely more liquid, the result of a stronger vegetation, lacks its greatest merit, vigour. In British communities, at least for the active classes, even in wine, the principal virtue is strength. The study of the various kinds of grapes should enable the vignerons to take advantage of the fecundity of rich soils in the warm countries. Would not the Cabernet Sauvignon, whose small berries give so little juice on the hills, produce in the flat a wine which would contain some of the grand qualities of that admirable species? Would not the Chasselet, which never dries up, which does not gain as other white grapes do, two or three degrees of glucose in two or three warm days, retain there the precious elements of finesse in wine. Such were the themes of our conversation as we were passing through the rows of the different kinds of vines. We were both counting on the future progress. From the summit of his vineyard, Mr. Truett showed me on the other side of the railway line, about two miles away, a woody slope where his son, just arrived at his eighteenth year, the age required by law, had selected 320 acres. By Jove, I said to him, half in a joke, if my nine children were of age, I could take out a fine block of land. And I could, he answered, point out to you good ground to select. Night had set in when we came back to the house. I had intended to go to stall by the evening train, but my hosts pressed me to stop. A countryman of mine, a Swiss, president of the Shire of Stahl, who was amongst their friends, proposed to show me the famous deep mines next day. I was easy to persuade, glad as I was to assist at their fate. The train to Stahl was to pass during the night. To complete my acquaintance with their establishment, we went to see the cellars. These were excavated in the ground, but not in the galleries, as at their neighbours. Here, the whole of the granite rock under the numerous wooden buildings had been hollowed out, portions of the solid mass being left to support the wooden partitions above. The external walls of the house were a little outside of the excavation, and this, in that dry region, was sufficient to keep off the occasional rains. The floors of the house, made of the hardest wood, were the roof of the cellars, and by removing a few of the boards in the vestibule, the largest casks could be entered or taken out. There were some 25,000 gallons of wine, all truly good. 
I hope my readers will be able to taste them at the Kensington Exhibition. More about them when we consider the wines of the different climes of Victoria. Coming out of the cellars, we joined the merrymaking people. Supper was being prepared. Besides the three long tables, fixtures between the big pillars in the centre of the vestibule, which were used for the daily meals of the family and of the workmen, two sets of other tables were getting ready. They were soon covered with white tablecloths, laden with fat turkeys and fowls, with hams, pies, fruit and flowers. Over fifty guests sat on both sides. To the English profusion of meat was added the good French cooking of vegetables. The best wine of the Vignoble was abundantly supplied. Besides the owners of properties in the neighbourhood, the guests came from Stahl and Ararat. Amongst these, some young ladies, teachers in a ladies' college where the daughter of the house had been educated, several of her school friends, some bank and government officials, the doctor of the district and the editor of the local paper. Towards the end of the supper, my compatriot, in his capacity of president of the shire, proposed the health of the queen, her birthday being the occasion of the gathering. In a few words, true and simple, he said that it was by her great virtues that the Queen had endeared herself to so many peoples, whose attachment to her and to her dynasty was on that day proclaimed over the whole world. All got up with heartfelt solemnity. They sang, God save the Queen. It was the expression of that deep-rooted sentiment which in all British colonies animates not only those who belong by birth to the British race, but also those who are sons by adoption. The proud feeling of solidarity of the one great family which unites all nationalities. A little later on, before the guests left their seats, I got up to propose a toast, which ten days amongst Victorian vineyards prompted me to lay before the company best fitted to welcome it. To the Australian vine, to the vine which gives prosperity, which makes men sober and kind, which engenders sociability, which employs most hands, which brings the greatest comfort to rural families, to the cultivation of the vine, the best of all to develop a new country. No doubt, Dr. Guillot had written all I said long before, but if he had foreseen it, I had the realisation before my eyes. After the tables were taken away, the young people began to dance. The piano rolled to the door of the sitting room, opening onto the vestibule, was accompanied by a violin. The old ones, Monsieur E., his brother-in-law and I, comfortably settled in a little office next to the big room, resumed our dissertations on wine-making, backed by samples, smoking and looking on at the merry couples whirling about. Now and then, good Mrs. Truett came to join us. It was then that, recalling a past to which the prosperous present added a charm, they gave me the details mentioned above. The train, which was to take several of the guests to their homes, passed at two o'clock in the morning. A little before, excellent coffee was given us, and after I had said goodbye to these kind people, Monsieur Truette, hospitable to the last, took my arm to guide me through the darkness up to the station. 
Chapter 10. Retrospective. A short review of the growth of the wine industry in Victoria during the last 25 years will serve to connect together my anecdotal digressions. But here I have to mention that a great portion of the present chapter and of the next one, giving this retrospective information, appear also in the handbook which the Government of Victoria has published on the occasion of the London, Indian and Colonial Exhibition. I was asked to supply a notice on Victoria's wines for that work. If my reader has already met with the following pages in the official publication, I trust he will excuse an unavoidable repetition and pass on to what will be new to him again. Twenty-five years ago, in 1860, the number of acres under vines in the colony of Victoria had not reached 2,000. Sydney and Adelaide, however, had already gained a name for Australia's wines. The Paris Exhibition of 1864 gave them the first signalised approbation. In 1862, when the Victorian government inaugurated the system of free selection, especially intended to foster the cultivation of the grape, a sort of infatuation for viticulture took place. The newspapers issued periodical reports on the plantations going on and on the successes obtained or anticipated. The Argus, the Melbourne Times, gave a large gold cup in competition for the best appointed vineyard. Lawyers, doctors and men of means, taking land under the new clauses, planted vineyards by proxies. Various syndicates were formed for a large extent of vines. In four years, over 2,000 acres were planted. Speculation, fashion, public opinion, all were pointing to prosperity. Unfortunately, the colonial taste was for strong drinks. Port and sherry advocates had taken up the movement. The warmest districts were proclaimed as the best to grow vines, and the men who planted in more temperate localities were pitied for their mistake. To those growers who took as types the strong wines of English commerce, it was not sufficient to obtain by proper maturity musts equal in richness to those of Spain and of Portugal. Many of them left their grapes standing on the vines until they were turned into raisins, and I recollect the case of an amateur vigneron who had his grapes carried to the zinc roofs of his sheds and cellars, and, previous to crushing them, left them there for two days, improving under a burning sun. Wines made in that fashion, not from must but from syrup, incapable of a complete fermentation, true compounds of sugar and alcohol, soon turned to vinegary sourness. The light wines of the cooler districts, sold too young and cheaper on account of their lesser strength, mixed by amateur wine merchants with the former ones, only developed their acidity. Day by day, the name of colonial wine became more ignominious. The trade died out, the neglected vineyards were gradually rooted out. All the while, however, many persevering men, careful of their plantations and diligent in their study of fabrication, were every year improving their vintages. The Melbourne International Exhibition of 1881, displaying an unsuspected and general amelioration, again brought the wine industry to the fore. The Emperor of Germany, zealous to foster the commercial relations of his people with the rising colonies of Australia, 
not only called forth a large representation of the goods of Germany, but sent to Melbourne a numerous staff, headed by a man distinguished in science and arts, Professor Rouleau, now a member of his council. In his hands the emperor had placed a munificent gift of solid silver of the value of £800, to be awarded as a special prize to an exhibitor of one of the Australian colonies, as an acknowledgement of the efforts in promoting art and industry shown by the high qualities of the goods manufactured by such exhibitor. Offered under such conditions, that Grand Prix called forth the keenest emulation. Fifteen jurors recommended fifteen competitors, each of whom was selected as the best representative of the principal colonial industries. Wool, tissues, printing, tobacco, machinery, various manufactures, and wine. Professor Rouleau was left to choose among the candidates. He felt it, he said, a most difficult task to decide between the competing claims, and he had almost made up his mind not to attempt it, but to hand the prize over to the public library with the names of the fifteen competitors inscribed upon it. The importance of the wine industry of Australia, however, enabled him to arrive at what would be a safe decision. The cultivation of the grape had been of great benefit to Germany, and he had no doubt it would become equally valuable here. The Australian wine possessed many important qualities. If he awarded the price to Messrs de Castella and Rowan, who were recommended by the wine jury, he was sure it would be recognised as a proof of the disinterestedness of Germany, for the colonial vignerons promised to become formidable competitors of the German wine growers. The prize was then formally awarded to the proprietors of the St. Hubert vineyard. Oh, I hope, oh my dear reader, that you will pardon my having transcribed all the above from the columns of the Argus of the 26th of April, 1881. As I said, a few days afterwards, when the prize was publicly delivered to my partner and myself, it was with a just sentiment of pride, which obliterated years of anxiety and justified years of sacrifices, that I felt that the august donor of that splendid prize would be pleased to learn that his gift had benefited not one firm only, but the whole of the Australian vineyards. Effectively, from that day, Australian wine was no longer thrown promiscuously under general condemnation. People who had never tasted it before condescended to have it on their tables. Clubs and hotels, yet full of strangers, could no longer refuse its admission, since it had obtained such recognition. It was a benefit to all. A few months afterwards, the growers of Victoria could count the value of their produce, even of their properties, substantially advanced. Another benefit, also very important, was conferred upon the wine growers at large by that eminent distinction. It opened their eyes to the requirements of the public taste, at least of educated taste. It educated their own. Over 400 Australian growers had sent samples to the exhibition. Some of them, although possessors of smaller acreage than the lucky winners of the Emperor's Prize, had run closely with them in the race for excellence. Their wines had been of equal value, but exhibited on a lesser scale. The result was that the growers who were left unnoticed, those who, to that day, had been only ambitious of strength, 
and what they mistook for body, began to ponder over the list of awards, when they found them all given to delicacy and a bouquet, to light wines principally, and to those only amongst the heavy ones which were free from alcoholic taste and unconverted sugar. Faith in alcohol was shaken in their hearts, and the value of alimentary wines dawned upon them. From that day dates a marked improvement in the Victorian vintages. The forthcoming London exhibition of 1886 will be, let us hope, for all of us the great educating event. End of part four.